Thanks for listening to The Derivative. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. The longer you go out in time, the more critical implied volatility or your forecast is, and the more leverage you get. So if you're buying an out-of-the-money option with a delta, five-year option roughly, a delta 0.1, you're getting about 10 times implicit leverage. Now, leverage, I I love non-recourse leverage. I don't like leverage for leverage's sake. Non-recourse leverages, you put a dollar down, you can make 10, you can't lose 10, you can only lose a dollar. I like that. So it has the symmetry, the asymmetry of payoff I love. The fact that it is, uh, it has convexity. So the the more implied vol goes up, the, the price, your premium price doesn't go up in a linear fashion, goes up exponentially. everyone. I'm excited to be sitting down today with one of the OGs of the derivative markets, options, tail hedging, and more. We've got Jerry Hayworth from 36 South joining us from somewhere in the south of France or England or both or one or the other um, to talk through all things tail hedging, out of the money, and whatnot. Welcome, Jerry. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So uh, you're in England and not France at the moment? Uh, yeah, I'm in London at the moment. Yeah. Uh, and how much time do you roughly split between the two? Um, I, I go down to France when I can. Uh, I take my holidays down there. So when I can, I get down there. I spend a bit of time, uh, you know, obviously working remotely. It's made a lot easier. Uh, so I spent a bit of time there last year and I spent a month there earlier on this year. Very pleasant. Yeah, what what part of France? I'm a big Tour de France fan, so I, anything uh, I know about it is all from watching the uh, Tour de France. It's quite close to Saint Emilion. Okay, so it's a lovely area, lovely part of France as well. Yeah, good wine down there. Yeah, good wine. <laughs> <laughs> Always you helps. Watch, you ever seen the tour come by? Do you ever watch any of that? Um, not really. No. no. Yeah. And there's big I, I can respect what they what they're doing but that's about all right um <laughs> yeah they're like a right tail event right like the unbelievable they can go up those mountains so fast yeah, yeah that's true some would argue it's because they're uh chemically enhanced but we'll leave that for another podcast right? <laughs> yeah that, yeah that could take up the whole hour <laughs> exactly <laughs> um and you're south african originally right uh zimbabwean which is zimbabwean. close enough yeah, so okay. Southern Africa. Yeah, I was born and raised in Zimbabwe. Um, yeah, which is a great place to be raised. Yeah, and how- in, Afri- in Africa, you get a lot of black swans down there. So, especially Zimbabwe. How did Zimbabwe get itself on the map? Like, right? It seems like it's uh, it punches way above its weight in terms of economic importance and participation in the global derivatives markets. Um. That's a good question. I've, yeah. I've, I've got no idea what um, <laughs> why it would punch itself above its weight in the derivative markets for sure. Right, but uh, like we're always talking about Zimbabwean bonds and right, it's always kind of in the financial news for some. Oh uh, yeah. Well, I suppose the hyperinflation um, is a good. It's a good example of hyperinflation for a start and. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it was a really interesting time to live through as well. Uh, um, and and amazing of- that that people sub- you know survived it, and you know 
I remember being uh, watching a, a, an arts and crafts guy selling his wares and offering, offering prices in five different currencies. Really? Yeah, including gold dust. <laughs> and it's mainly, a, is it gold-based economy? Like a, the no, main... No, mainly agricultural. I think tobacco is their biggest crop. Okay. Yeah. And you ever get back there? Yeah, occasionally. Um, there's some great fishing to be done there. Uh, I get back to Southern Africa once a year, uh, mainly to see the wildlife. And there's, who's that? Uh, there was a good uh, Zimbabwean golfer. I'm trying to remember his name. Yeah, Nick Price. Nick Price, right. Yeah, he, he's a great friend of mine. And an oh, really? amazing guy, yeah. All right. What's he up to these days? He's, he's kind of past his, his playing days, or he's still playing? Yeah. Them? No, I think he's. I think he stopped playing. I think he's. He, he's with the PGA board now. If I. If I am correct. That sounds. Um, like which is, you couldn't find a nicer guy and with more integrity. So I think it's really good for the game. Um, so how did you make your way from Zimbabwe up to London and into the, into the derivatives markets? So I left. I left Zimbabwe to go to uh, uni after military service and um, there I did, I did my thesis on the viability of an options exchange in South Africa. So I'd already um, kind of, from the moment I saw options, I thought these are really interesting. At that time, I didn't even think there was a financial model. That's how far back we're going. Um, yeah, worked around, ended up working uh, at Investec, which I think I was the 55th person at Investec, uh, a bank down there that's grown to, so, you know, five, six, seven thousand people now. So, um, and I got a job trading uh, bonds. I actually left Investec, got a trade, a job trading bonds. I worked for the, the local stock exchange trying to set up their futures and options exchange and, you know, pos position myself in the options market um, very early on when literally there wasn't much software. I remember we were, we wrote, we wrote down our positions on a whiteboard and the one day we came and we found that the cleaner had wiped all our positions off the whiteboard. We, did, we had to try and reconstruct what we had. Um, so it was very much sort of cowboy style trading and uh, we muddled through that. Um, what year is this roughly? It's got to be about 85. Oh no, it's got to be about 88, 89. Got it. Um, and then uh, yeah, joined, joined back at Investec uh, and became the head of equity derivatives. Uh, left there, started my own shop, which was basically uh, structuring derivative strategies for institutions. That did really well. Uh, it IPO'd sort of early 90s. And then I moved to New Zealand and did, well, attempted a music degree for a couple of years. Oh, fun. <laughs> um, so a bunch to unpack there, but... Uh... I was thinking back to the old board of trade days where they're like putting the market prices on the chalkboard, remember? So yeah, yeah. I'm sure that happened right. at some point. Yeah. Someone wiped the chalkboard and nobody knew yeah, what the last exactly. price was. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, so structuring the, well, I wanted to first say, so you're trading government bonds, that's across the world? What was what was the main thing you traded? Uh, no, they were uh, just South African bonds and they were very volatile, um, yeah. I remember in uh, LTCM crisis, I got offered 100 million bonds at 21.65 yield to maturity. Ooh. Yeah, which I should have taken them. I didn't take them. I was too fearful. <laughs> yeah. And who was calling up to do the trades? Hedge funds from across the world or other central banks? Yeah, banks. Everyone was liquidating pretty much everything at that stage. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's exciting. Um, yeah. And then structuring these derivatives for corporations. Did give us a little quick background. Yeah. On so designing strategies, uh, 
zero cost strategies. We also designed uh, structured notes and were very successful at doing that. Uh, there was such a great tailwind uh, for the products. I mean, we had 16% interest rates. So on a five-year structured note, uh, you could get a zero uh, coupon bond at a very small percentage of the capital required, which left you a lot of a lot of finance to buy some really great uh, long-dated options. So yeah, we designed some great product. Um, yeah, that was fun. And so these were mainly South African companies you were structuring these for or across the, across the uh, world? Yeah, mainly South African companies, yeah. And they were trying to, they were doing complex hedges or trying to create alpha? Yeah, there were all varieties of different uh, strategies. A lot of them, uh, you know, like the zero cost uh, collars were quite popular. They're, we were we were trying to design about around what they, uh, what we were trying to give them a, a better solution to what they were trying to achieve. Um, we had equity linked bonds as well into the mix. So there was, it was quite advanced for its day, uh, I must say. And kind of the predecessor for what a lot of big banks do now. Yeah. 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 Of their structured notes and. Yeah. Which a lot of times I've seen like they're, short vol for the bank, right? The bank might offset that, but. Yeah, uh, we never designed, we, yeah, we always went and got the exact uh, product that we wanted to fit into the structured product. But I understand the way banks do it now. And to be honest, I wouldn't want to manage the residual risk, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> it wouldn't. Yeah, and I there's some funds we talked to whose main, main alpha is like going out to those banks and trying to take the other side of those, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we, we see quite a bit of flow currently from those kind of products as well. Good. Uh, and now, so then how did, uh, or so no, I wanted to also ask on the music degree. So you go to New Zealand. Had you ever been before? You said. I, I'd been there once. I'd followed a rugby tour and I phoned my wife that night and said, this is, this is God's country. We're coming to live here. <laughs> and when I haven't yeah. changed my view on that. Yeah. yeah. She said, okay, let's do it. Yeah. So we packed up ourselves and three small children and headed off to New Zealand. Um, yeah. Great country. Great and country. So how many years there and what was the music degree all about? Uh, yeah, I did a, I did, I was attempting a, a bachelor of music and uh, jazz performance. Um, but like my vocal teacher said, I'm the exact point in the universe where talent and passion don't meet. So, but it was fun and I, it was interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, and what's your passion, jazz? Jazz, yeah, yeah. Any specific type or just all, all the above? Um, all, all kinds really, yeah, yeah. The, uh, how, how do you feel about our Chicago blues? I love it. Love it. You ever been here and been to some of the? Yeah, bars? I have been to some blues bars in Chicago. I can't think of the names off offhand, but I have. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, and it's always Chicago has always been a big jazz uh, city, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and they kind of went to the blues side, but the uh, you were probably a blues B W B period L period U period U E S or uh, buddy guys down on the south side or. Um, the one that just went bankrupt during COVID or they closed during COVID, uh, Kingston Mines, unfortunately. Okay. Yeah. Those are some of the best. Yeah. I haven't been for a while. Uh, so now somewhere in there, you're sitting with your uh, music career in New Zealand and said, all right, let's start this hedge fund, 36 South. Well, actually we were just trading our own capital. Um, I, a, a university friend and I, we just got together and we were trading our own capital. Um, and it was sort of 88, 80, uh, sort of 98, 99. We were busy trying to short the NASDAQ in the one of the biggest bull markets of the time and nearly got our faces ripped off. Um, <laughs> and realized that actually we're not, I'm, what, I'm not that good of a 
classic trader. Uh, our career, both our careers were in options. So we said, why don't we just, you know, if this is going to, if it is, if eight out of 10 internet companies are going to go down, uh, why don't we just use long dated options or, or le equity leaps? So we took a leap portfolio that worked pretty well. And then we started thinking about it. we need, we now wanted to do cross asset class because we thought the long dated options, uh, there's definitely an edge. And we probably would need to do uh, cross all asset classes. So we need ISDAs. And the banks wouldn't give us ISDAs unless we had a fund. So we literally started a fund in order to get the ISDAs. And we got friends and family involved and we kicked off from there. Um, we started in 2001. Uh, it was a classic Nassim Taleb strategy, 25% in options and 75% in cash. And we trundled along nicely until 2008. Uh, we made sort of 20% plus for that time, which only risking 25% of the assets, a good risk reward. Yeah. And then 2008 hit and two things happened. Firstly, our Black Swan fund did really well. And our, the fund, as I just previously described, uh, made, uh, I think it was 73%. And that was a bit of a turning point for us because we realized that long-dated options not only great in their own right for a couple of reasons, they've got characteristics that make them suitable for risk mitigation. Uh, and that's when we started focusing, going, yeah, this is... And um, we realized that traditional portfolios need some sort of risk mitigation. 2008 uh really showed that who's the we in this scenario so you have uh, rich hollington my lifelong friend partner uh we've been partners for over 20 years now and yeah i couldn't wish i couldn't wish for a better partner to be honest you haven't strangled each other yet over 20 years not at all we've <laughs> we've done a couple of canoe marathons together been around the world together and run this business together well, now we're getting to the good stuff. What's a canoe marathon? It, it was a marathon down in South Africa uh, that I think it was 120 kilometers running and canoeing over three days. Wow. It was pretty yeah, it was pretty brutal, but uh, yeah. How'd you place? Uh, no, uh, mediocre. Yeah, you finished. Yeah. The goal is to yeah, finish. Yeah, finish is a win. To finish is a win. And what are the, you have to be worried about like wildlife and, and whatnot? Not really, no. Okay. No, just, just drowning yourself, I suppose. <laughs> Great. So let's dig into the strategy a little more. Or sorry, what, where did the name come from? 36 South. It's the latitude of Auckland. Ah, oh, I was thinking yeah. the latitude of South Africa. And then I looked yeah. it up and I'm like, no, I'm off. Yeah. I'm off six. Yeah. So uh, it's a latitude of Auckland and yeah, in the absence of any other, I, I definitely didn't want to name it after a Greek God. That's for sure. Well, yeah, you, the typicals are some Greek word or Hayworth asset management, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's not so close. It's a nice neutral name. Like and it. It, it has the benefit of appearing at the top of every list. Um, maybe it's a, dubious benefit but uh, so yeah it, it appears at the top of every list so right it's pre pre-alphabetical yeah um yeah one year my uh my sister got married in uruguay and we took that trip and went down to the glacier and the very uh oh, the tip of south africa and califet uh um argentina excuse me so and then later and that was in you know january their summer and then in our summer here in the U.S., I did the uh, Mackinac race and ended up in Mackinac Island, which is at the top of Lake Michigan. Oh, wow. Um, that same year, I'd been above the 45th parallel and below the... Uh, wow. In that same year, which was fun. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, so let's talk a little bit. So give me the quick elevator pitch on what you're doing. You mentioned 
tail risk. You mentioned long dated options. So, you know, your website says pan asset long dated options. What's the quick elevator pitch on what you guys are trying to do? Yeah. So firstly, long dated options tend to be extremely undervalued or overvalued. Um, and if what's we your, can, sorry, sorry, what's your theory on why that is? Um, well, if you go back to first principles, if you look at a, uh, at an option pricing model, there's only one real variable and that's implied volatility. So you plug in implied volatility into a model. And in fact, I did it just before I came, uh, I spoke to you, uh, a Google five-year option price 100% out of the money, Alphabet, Google, price 100% out of the money. Its current uh, vol is about 26. It's valued at $163. If it went down at 20% implied volatility, it'd be valued at $59. So that's about a 70% reduction. Wow. If it goes down to 10% implied volatility, it goes down to 63 cents. And if, it, if the market really uh, involved really took off and it went to 100% implied volatility, it'd be worth $1,734. Now, I mean, I know we've got physics envy, but <laughs> if I was to design bolts for a bridge that had tolerances like this, it would have the consistency of wax or titanium. So yeah, which yeah. is it? Right. So on that premise, uh, we believe if we buy what we consider are inexpensive options and warehouse them with appropriate profit stops, it has expected positive return. We, we will make money over time. If we include both right tail and left tail, the left tail element uh, is very important for risk mitigation. There's very few things that display the characteristics of long-dated options uh, that display the char characteristic for a tail hedge, i.e. they have convexity, they, they can go exponential, they display a symmetry, you can put down a small amount of money and make a big amount of money, they, it's investable, it's a huge market, um, and they make them, so it's a perfect, uh, a risk, risk mitigator. And of course, it, it's negatively correlated. So when the market goes down, uh, you can rely on volatility go up. And that's also really important. Uh, in fact, funny enough, having a, a convex curve like a big U has the ideal correlation profile. It's positively correlated with a bull market and negatively correlated with a bear market which is exactly that. That's, that's what investors want. Yeah. That's a perfect, that's a, the only problem with that is that there's a cost to it. That's the only problem with that. That is a perfect correlation profile for any portfolio. Yeah. And I was going to, on your example there with the Google, right? My mind thinks of it as, so what, what'd you say was $163? Uh, the, the $163. Yeah. So right in my mind, like, and I don't know exactly what you mean by 100% out of the money. How can it be 100% out of the money? So if Google's now, or Alphabet is uh, 2,600 would be double that. So 5,200. Okay, got it. Um, yeah. So, right, maybe there's one in a thousand chance of it happening in the next five years, probably lower than that, right? But call it one in a thousand. My mind that's, is what, that's what I said in the last five years. I used to do this example when it was 1,200. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but right in my mind, it's kind of a terminal break-even trade, no matter how, where, where you put that. Uh, maybe it's one in a hundred chance. So I yeah. spend that $163 99 times, and then I get back uh, $1,630 yeah. or whatever that math is, and it's terminal break-even. So how do, you, how do you kind of approach that math? I, I don't, we more look at it as if we buy a five-year option, what are the chances, if we bought it, say, at 20, say, $20. So we're buying it when the market's really cheap for bull. We buy it for $20. Uh, 
what are the chances of it reaching $60 in its life? Yeah. So we, we look at it as a continual horse race for five years. We don't look at it as a terminal value. So if, an, if say, there's a vol spike in year two and it goes to $80, we would have put a profit stop under it. And if it falls back down, we'll be out. So uh, we, a disproportionate number of wins by using that methodology, even though it is might be a thousand to one chance or a hundred to one chance, yeah. the chance of retiring it profitably is a lot less than that, because it's it's predicated on volatility. Right, and 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 you won't bite if the if the bleed is too much. If you think that the gain you'll get from volatility doesn't uh, cover the bleed you'll suffer, then you pass. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it was one of the guys in Hedge Fund Wizards said the biggest edge you can have is not to do the trade. Yeah, I think so yeah, by the end, big on that too, right? Yeah, so by the end of uh, 2008, I think we were 95% in cash. There was just not much left to buy. Right, and the same thing here in March of 2020, or no? Um, funny enough, well... There were still currencies which uh, hadn't participated. They didn't express the level of crisis that equities did. So uh, I would say there were still things to buy for a, if it hadn't turned around like it did, there were still tail, uh, tail hedges you could buy by proxy. But equity left tail, there was pretty much nothing left to buy. Right. And so let's dig into that a little bit. You're not just playing in Google or single stock names or S&P options, right? You're yeah. what you call pan asset, but talk to us about what that includes. What's the universe of potential trades? Um, commodities, currencies, uh, mainly uh, receive and pay us options, uh, but we do euro dollar as well. So interest rates, currencies, commodities, and equities. Um, and there's good reason for that. I mean, often uh, the opportunities don't necessarily exist at any one point in time in one asset class. Um, yet in a systemic crisis, correlation between asset class volatility tends to one. So the proxies, if they if they cheap enough, uh, tend to outperform the direct hedges. And I would say from April onwards to the end of last year, that would be the case for equities. S&P skew was very uh, steep and they were expensive. And so you'll seek out proxies to cover that uh, yeah. downside. Yeah, yeah. Those no, yeah because I, I won't just buy a direct hedge just because it needs uh, we need to mitigate the risk if it's not worth buying, um, and yeah. Vice versa on that, will you buy something that provides no hedge just because it's a great value? Yeah, we also buy right tail options. So uh, we will buy idiosyncratic right tail options that are not necessarily a hedge to a left, a left tail event. Um, because, and the reason for that is that, A, we're looking always to mitigate the cost of the left tail um, and if the market runs up strongly, we want to still be relevant. So like last year, um, the markets run so hard, you've got to, you've got to almost reinstate your, your left tail positions to be remotely relevant. Yeah. And that, uh, we find the right tail is useful for that. But it wouldn't be something like uh, cocoa calls or something, right? Like, could it be something totally out of left field? That yeah. Okay. If if it uh, if it it can be totally out of left field, if it fulfills our our metrics, you know, if it passes all our filters, um, we will look we'll look at it. But still, you view the the total as as a tail hedge product, right? Like it's that would just kind of come in as a to provide some positive carry. Yeah, yeah. We, we found over the years we've run dedicated left tail product. 
Um, like I said, we had this black swan that did really well in 2008. We did a managed account after that that did really well as well over 2011. But dedicated left tail tends to be uh, more expensive than twin tails. Yeah, for sure. And then the new, you have a new program, right? The Kuinor uh, Neutral Carry. Yeah. Um, Which is, this is our best, this is the, the result of our best thinking, because obviously you're, we're always running long volatility and being long volatility generally is going to cost you. And over the years, more so the last 10 years, we've come across options that whilst they're still decaying away, they tend to accrue positively for various reasons. And it might be vol skew, normally the forward differential, and we can position strikes such that if nothing happens, they will improve in value over their life. And so we've, we've dedicated a fair bit of time to understanding how and why and when that, that occurs and how to mix them in a portfolio. And we feel confident now that we can run a uh, a portfolio of positively accruing options and blend it with convex options. So if something happens, the convex options kick in. And if nothing happens, the positively accruing options kick in. So this, uh, this fund is, it's really, it, uh, it's probably a, a, a tail hedge fund on training wheels. That's the way I would yeah. uh, tongue in cheek describe it. Because it's, we, we look to carry neutrally over a rolling five-year period. So if nothing happens, we don't expect to have lost money. If something happens, we expect to make a certain, certain percentage, which is quite reasonable, actually. So it allows even traditional uh, funds to get some risk mitigation into their portfolio. And it compares with bonds this low, it compares very favorably as a risk mitigator to bonds, which I don't I believe are losing their effectiveness near the zero bound as a risk mitigator. So yeah, I think it's it's a product, it's it's got a lot of appeal. We had a very good uh, launch. So yeah. Yeah, I mean it and to me it fits well with investor behavioral issues right like it's hard exactly. to hold that tail hedge for year after year and see the negative print yeah in fact they tend the one of the behavioral biases is the tendency to sell it just before an event and when when i get a cluster of clients redeeming you know it's coming i get quite excited because it's 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 the best tail i've i've got <laughs> The, right. Well, uh, Calpers famously ditched their tail hedge right before March, right? Yeah. In yeah. January or February. Yeah. Um, but so it's not selling vol to provide that carry. We do spreads okay. uh, to take advantage of vol skew, but we don't net sell vol. Because um, a lot of funds are solving the same problem by doing that, right? They're going to sell the belly and have wings on and capture the wings. Yeah, another way to do it. I I totally get that. Uh, it's another way to do it. We just find by doing it cross asset uh, and looking at the correlation of different market regimes, we can get very good carry up, uh, positively accruing options and very good convex options, not necessarily in the same market. Whereas if you're trying to do it in the same product, a lot of the banks, they're very good at arbing away those differences. So, yeah, the moment you go across asset, you've got chasms difference in, in potential pricing. And so let's dig into that some. So, yeah, I was assuming you were talking, There's you found an option and I'm going to use the cocoa example. For some reason, I must have uh, hot chocolate on my mind or something. But, um, yeah, right. And you're not finding some option spread in cocoa that has this positive carry. You're creating basically a synthetic market between asset classes. No, it could be in cocoa. Okay. And, but it, it now depends on, on the correlation between cocoa and S&P in up to 10 different market regimes. Okay. So if cocoa reliably is negatively correlated to the S&P 
when the market's down 30 plus, we would definitely consider it as one of our positively accruing options. You know, probably the best example we had is, is receiver swaptions. It's got to be a few years ago now, probably about eight years. We observed that you could position strikes and receiver swaptions on a call spread on the US receiver swaptions. So it's a very liquid market. And if nothing happens, they would accrue hundreds of percent. And they were also, you can generally state that interest rates will go down if the equity market falls over. So you can, you can comfortably uh, lump them excluding risk parity blow up in a left tail scenario. So now you're having a left tail option that positively accrues. That is, that is worth its weight in gold. Yeah. So for listeners and maybe myself, explain a swaption if you could real quick. So it's just a, an option to, uh, to enter into a swap, either as a receiver of the fixed price or a payer of the fixed price. Um, so in this example, you're buying the swaptions? Yeah, so we were buying the swaption for, I think it was 10 basis points. And if it was on the two-year rate, and if the two-year rate stayed exactly the same, it would accrue multiples. I think it was four times its original price mm. if nothing happened. So if rates went it, up, you lose If money. rates went up, would lose the 10 basis points. If rates went down, which was what you expect on an equity meltdown, then we'd still make the, the multiples. So, so if you look at the bell curve, the whole section from the middle of the bell curve right to the left, you're going to make uh, multiples of your original investment. That's a valuable, carry, that's a val valuable option to have in a uh, tail hedge fund. And so are you, are you using um, any machine learning or AI? Are you data crunching to find these these opportunities now yeah we've we've just we've done a gone a long way down that uh because it's one thing to find the right option yeah it's quite another to put two three four five together and see how they behave uh running an option portfolio as you probably aware is like trying to herd cats yeah <laughs> uh, and so we've gone a long way and the the critical element that we've really sharpened our expertise on is the correlation in different market regimes. So it's, it's not enough to have a constant correlation number for where we are now, because if we're in a late stage bull market, the correlations will differ when the market's down 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. Um, so we model it over all different market regimes. And to date, I haven't come across a better way to do it. Yeah. And that's, and so that's the risk to the whole thing, right? Of that correlations are unstable and the correlation you're relying on doesn't hold in the future. That's yeah. kind of the basis risk. But it might be out. unstable in your favor. Yeah. 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 So there's one currency uh, which will remain unnamed that has a very good negative correlation in crises and pretty low vol. Um, so yeah, it is, it's, it's quite, fairly reliable as a left tail option. And is there sort of a reality check on all this? So if it shot out, like I had this pet theory that natural gas was so low, it became a uh, flight to safety asset for a long time. Yeah. So if it shoots out, hey, you should own a bunch of natural gas because in the crisis, people might put money in there because it can't go any lower. Yen yeah. is a classic example of that, right? But yeah. if it shot out natural gas, you're going to be like, hold on a second, that doesn't quite make sense fundamentally. Well, we put it into the we put it into our engine, and it busy recombines roughly by Monte Carlo. I mean, we just brute force it, yeah. And it comes up with teams and options that perform in every market environment. So even if the market's up up ten, up ten, twenty, up thirty, or down, the team tends to perform well, and it has a left tail. Um, and it comes up with some really interesting teams that I wouldn't have picked, I, I would never have guessed. And it, it's also, a, it's a great way for us to then go and have a look and say, yeah, 
Let's have a look at this team. Um, you know, much like Moneyball, the, the best team on the pitch is not necessarily the most glamorous players. I think Chris Cole uh, has used this analogy widely, and it holds true. Yeah. So I love this teams of options. I think you, that we can add that to the options lexicon now. So in, that, in our examples, right, maybe cocoa by itself is not good. Maybe natural gas by itself is no good. But those together plus some dollar options, now we have a team that yeah. performs, has the profile we want. Yeah. Yeah. So we broadly put it into two, if you looked as you've got your attacking attackers and you've got your defenders in pretty much yeah. every sport. So the positively accruing options are the defenders uh, and your convex options are your attackers. And that's roughly how we view it. So we're looking, so like in the carry neutral fund, we're looking to be neutral, i.e. pay for the negative carry that the convex options provide in, uh, in normal times. And we look to the convex options to score the goals when it's opportune for them. Except for canoe marathon doesn't have uh, attackers and defenders, right? <laughs> no, it just has that. It has one thing that you need, and that's persistence and patience. Pain <laughs> and suffering. Right? Um, yeah. Well, the computer. So, a would this have been possible before kind of advances in in machine learning and stuff? Would this have taken a army, a room full yeah. of hundred people to crunch the data? Yeah. yeah, I don't think it would be. It wouldn't have been feasible 10 years ago even, I don't think. Yeah. And and then B, my mind's going to, all right, I have this team of like, what's the limit on how many options can be in a team? Because in my mind, like, all right, I've got this team of four, but if I add this one, it it makes it better. If I add this one, it makes that one better, right? It seems yeah. like you could lose control of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't think you want to... I don't think you, I suppose you could try and uh, micromanage it, but I think you want to get the broad principles right and for it roughly to do what uh, you expect it to do and then have some uncommon common sense overlaid on the top of that. Uncommon common sense. I like that. <laughs> um, so it's more just going to be kind of a, it's like in the old days, you're calling the trade desk and they're saying, hey, have you looked at these swaptions? There's a really good rate on them. And yeah. now it's just the machine saying, hey, take a look at these teams. Yeah. They fit our risk profile. Decide which ones you want. Maybe one day we'll get to the point where we rely on it 100%, but we're a long way from that. Yeah, I appreciate that. It scares me a little when it's 100%. Yeah, yeah. Especially exactly. in options world. Because sometimes, right, the data is not necessarily even clean. So I don't know. 100%. How do you approach that problem? Do you create your own option prices or rely on the exchange prices? Um, we Look, we've been around the market so long. I think uh, we've got a natural cynicism and skepticism that gets us through most, um, through most issues in terms of pricing. You know, it's, when we're looking to buy an option, it's not really that the pricing isn't, critical if we know you know going back to that google option if it's if it's trading at two dollars and we know that it could be worth anywhere from 63 cents to seventeen hundred dollars uh two dollars or two dollars twenty or one dollar eighty is not really going to make a difference on yeah. the five-year result even if you bought it at three dollars that's what makes a market right a mismatched time horizons and right so somebody's yeah. super excited to sell that to you for 220 yeah the, the, the trader at the bank books books his profit gets his bonus that year that's fine yeah. you know we we bought uh 25 year options at really good vol and honestly i would not be the one to manage that option for 25 years yeah <laughs> right that seems like a So let's talk about that a little bit, go backwards to their kind of overall philosophy of why the, tell us some of those properties of these long-term options that get you excited and what exactly you mean. I didn't know you were going to go out 25 years. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. That's like the uh, hundred year, Austrian hundred year bonds, right? Like at some point there seems to be a limit on the duration of these, but I guess. Not. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, uh, Warren Buffett, I think when he bought Geico, had a sleepless night because it had a hundred year electricity options they had written inside Geico. I, I think I've got the details right. I might have them wrong. But that's the longer you go out in time, the more critical implied volatility or your forecast is, and the more leverage you get. Yeah. So if you're buying an out of the money option with a delta, five year option, roughly a delta 0.1, you're getting about 10 times implicit leverage. Now, leverage, I, I love non recourse leverage. I don't like leverage for leverage sake. Non recourse leverage is you put a dollar down, you can make 10, you can't lose 10, you can only lose a dollar. Right. I like that. So it has the symmetry, the asymmetry of payoff I love. The fact that it is, uh, it has convexity. So the the more implied vol goes up, the the price your premium price doesn't go up in a linear fashion, goes up exponentially. That convexity is also lovely to have in a portfolio. Uh, it is investable. It's it's a huge market. Um, it's negative. You can get negatively correlated to the traditional markets. So all those characteristics are similar to what, if you wanted to insure portfolio and you could get, if you could go and buy insurance from an insurance company and insure your portfolio against losses, they would be offering a product with those characteristics. Yeah. And what kind of, do you have any idea on the average in that scenario, like what the average yield you have to pay per year? So if I'm holding it for five years, what's my annual burn? Vary so much. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're looking at the currency market versus every, yeah, which is, is quite weird because uh, an option is just really a, a bet on how much something jiggles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what the, the default assumptions for how much something jiggles in the currency market is totally different to the equity market. And Tesla is totally different to uh, yeah. Facebook. Yeah, yeah. So that's quite interesting in itself. There's no, there's no um, hard and fast rule, and I think the only way to look at it is to look at its own, look at an asset with reference to its own volatility history and its asset class's volatility history. Got it. But you, in for your portfolio, you're not going to buy something and lose, right? That would cost the fund. 40% of the fund's value or something if it if no. it declines to zero, right? If the No, no. Yeah. Well, we designed the funds with different uh, theta burns in, in mind. Like our high octane fund, we have built in a 15% uh, burn a year, but that's designed to give that level of octane convexity. That's, that's extremely high octane fund but it's designed with that in mind. And like the carry neutral, we design, uh, we design it for it to be around zero in that kind of time. And I'm sure there's people just, right? The classic option seller loves that you're willing to pay and hold this thing for 10 years. And they'll say, great, yeah. I'm gonna take that, uh, take that income in today. Yeah, well, and there's a lot of structured product issuance around the five-year area as well. Currency is precious. You can get out to 10 years uh, quite easily. Um, it is fairly deep markets uh, in those, what I've just mentioned. And equity tends to be a bit shorter, but sometimes you can get longer. And you and so you're still doing these ISDAs or is it all exchange trading? It's, it's ISDAs, but it has changed quite a lot in, since 2008 in that a lot of them are margin now. So, and I think it'll, I think it's due to become, uh, it's due basically every ODC will be margin. Yeah. So, you know, the it, it really has blurred the distinction between traded and ODC. And Traders, so the clearing members of the trade of the exchange or the banks anyway. And yeah. <laughs> so you've got the same counterparties underpinning both. And so in your scenario, you're buying the, the long dated option. The seller has to put up margin to cover you in case you win on the trade. Yep. Win on the trade. Yeah. Um, 
has that ever been a problem in the past where you were you killed it on an option and the counterparty disappeared? No. Um, yeah, fortunately, we. I think we just got a bit lucky in 2008. We don't hold more than 25% in any one counterparty anyway in any fund. So even if we did have a big counterparty go go down, in that environment, the rest of the fund, I'm sure, would have uh, covered that and some change. And if more than two, two counterparties go down, I think uh, we were definitely in the wrong business anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that was all that was driving the increase in prices in 08, right? Of the, yeah. That AIG, perhaps the ultimate counterparty was going to not be there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which leads me to how do you view this kind of Fed put environment we've been in for quite some time now and, you know, central banks across the world kind of putting a floor on markets? Does that, do you model that in? Like that seems to me that that truncates or puts a cap on the amount that these long dated options can pay out? Well, my best analogy is that imagine a, a vaccine that we've never tried before. We rush to market and we vaccinate everyone and suddenly we find it doesn't work yeah. as we thought. This central bank, bank experiment has never been done on a global scale. It's been done by uh, third world dictators yeah. and and almost probably 100% has ended badly. So while we think we're going to dodge a bullet here and this is all going to work out well, I'm not so sure. Um, and you have personal I, Zimbabwean experience with that, right? Yeah, I, I suppose I am a bit old school because I, yeah, because I have experienced hyperinflation. It's a terrible thing to inflict on society and I don't know why they would risk it, especially when you don't need to. Um, it drives wealth. Central bank interventions are driving wealth inequality. I don't see the... I think the the rewards are not outweighed by how much it's, it's harming. So, yeah, I'm a bit skeptical about it. Um, but it could work for 50 years and fail in the 51st year, right? And you, you have to live through those next 50 before it fails. A hundred percent. Yeah, 50 might be a bit too long, I think, for this <laughs> experiment. <laughs> um, and so what do, you, what do you think if when, when it fails, in your opinion, what, what happens? What does that look like? I suspect that if inflation does emerge, and it is a function of the velocity of money, so you, we definitely got the mass of money, but we've always had to, we've had in, the, in recent history declining velocity. That's why the apparent inflation is not there. If the velocity of money picks up and starts accelerating, I think the velocity of money is a bit like kinetic energy. It's MV squared or MV cubed. It's not, a, uh, it's not a linear function to the mass of money. And that's just straight off the top of my head. Yeah. But no, uh, but what, what I'm saying is that it will start, inflation will start to rise exponentially. It won't be, it'll be some sort of exponential function or power law function. So if that starts to happen and you think the central banks have got an eight year average rate, this is like a trader at a big bank saying, I trade mean reversion and the closer it gets to the top of the band, the more I sell. Yeah. What happens when it breaks that band? We know what happens. The risk manager steps in and says, close the portfolio down. And then for the central banks, that'll mean they will have to play catch up with their interest rates. And that will be very ugly. Yeah. It just seems to me, they'll pull every stop out of the book then, right? Of just, hey, they'll wipe out debts. They'll forgive each other debts. It seems, it, it, as long as they're coordinated, it'll take one person to step out of line. Once, once one does, then the dominoes could fall. But if they stay coordinated, they can kind of keep the shell game going indefinitely. Yeah. Well, that's, firstly, will they stay co coordinated and be, uh, if one raises rates, yeah, that'll probably be enough. Yeah. Um, and then the US in that example, do you feel like they're the least at risk of all this? Right? Would they be or the most? 
or somewhere in between? Well, I think the whole Western world, I think probably the, the least at risk is, is the less complex financial economies. I mean, if the discount rate goes up, say, 10%, where would the property market be? And where would the equity market be? Yeah. Well, property market would, right. If mortgage rates go up, if the payments go up 10%, the prices are coming down 10%. Like you see well, that. Yeah, I'd say if, well, I'm talking about if the interest rates, you know, move to 10%. Oh, wow, wow, wow. Yeah. Okay. The property market would be down 90%. Oh, yeah. Huge. Yeah. So, and at the moment they're saying we've got it, we can't, we won't raise interest rates. And if we do it, we'll do it slowly. But inflation might have other ideas. I certainly hope it doesn't happen. But it, it is an experiment. And I think uh, they're running unnatural risks from where I can see. Yeah. And at the same time, you're not, your models, your program doesn't really care what happens. I mean, yeah. right. You're not betting the farm on, on this blowing up next month, next week. You know, our duration of our fund is over five years and we keep it rolling out. A vol event happens, you know, more or less every five years. If you go back to 1987, it was only between 2011 and 2020, we had nine years. Um, and if it's not raising interest rates, it'll be something else. Yeah, I'm, I'm on board with you. I think the next crisis is definitely a rates driven, right? That the bond market leads us, which we just saw on Monday. So you've been at this game a while, 30 plus years, right? Yeah. Um, just broadly, talk to us what's different, you know, from five years ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, is it harder? Are there more options pros out there? Are option prices tighter? You know, and just um, in general, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, the, the number of clearing banks, the number of banks active in derivatives has gone down since 2008. I think that's fair to say. Um, and the, the liquidity is still there and it's getting taken more over by, by sort of non-bank shops. And so the liquidity is still there. Um, fortunately for us, when we're buying options in a low vol environment, everybody wants to sell. Yeah. And when we're selling options in a high vol environment, everyone wants to buy. So we're fortunate from a liquidity point of view, we get liquidity both sides. Um, yeah, you're a liquidity but, provider on both sides. Yeah, but I think uh, what has changed is the, the, moats, the moats around the derivative businesses are definitely getting bigger, which now once I'm, you know, I have an established business, that's good for me, but it's not good for anyone trying to start a fund or trying to start a, uh, a shop that might aid the market by providing liquidity or it's getting a lot more regulated. Um, and the collateral requirements are there's something that, that's not talked about much at all. Since 2008, the, the posting margin for ODC contracts has put the market at greater systemic risk, which sounds counterintuitive. Um, because what has happened now is when the market goes down like March, April, not only do the traded options get margin calls, so do the ODCs. In 2008, you just oh, really? hope, you just, you hoped and prayed that your counterparty didn't get, go down, but you didn't get, uh, trigger margin or collateral margining. Yeah. So now you've got this, I don't know how big the, OTC market is, but I think it's, you know, the total options market, according to Bist.org, is 100 trillion, of which at least half of that is ODC. Now, all of a sudden, you've got big margin calls on a daily basis on the whole 100 trillion. And that's just options. Now, expanded out to derivatives. Yeah. So the collateral... Uh, the amount of collateral required, and I think they ran into a big problem in large, last March and April, is the reason why liquidity crisis, we're probably more prone to liquidity crises, not less. Yeah, I think there's been a few uh, 
I don't know if you know, Corey Hofstein did a paper on that, Liquidity Cascades. Yeah. And then, uh, Wellington or someone like that just kind of piled on there. Sim yeah. Similar thing of like, it's becoming, the structure is becoming more illiquid because everyone's going to have to meet margin calls and liquidate, which drives yeah. further liquidation. Yep. Yeah. Which part of me seems that's always been the case, but perhaps there's, there needs to be more Delta hedging and there needs to be more risk control. It just seems those banks and everyone involved has much tighter risk yeah. five years ago than 10 years ago. Right. So yeah. you can't go home with a hundred million short, you know, open exposure yeah. anymore. you got to hedge that yeah. before the end of the day. Which is, you know, if we're more prone to liquidity crises, it's good for a long ball fund. It's not yeah. going to be, you know, it just means the prices are going to be much deeper, wider, and, you know, downturns will be much uh, more exaggerated that th than they would have been. Yeah, I call it, you need to be on the video for this one, people, sorry, but you squeeze the distribution, right? So you're going to have taller heads, yeah. and fatter tails, but you're saying exactly. we're going to compress all this. Yeah, more leptocurtic, yeah. Yeah, so that's where we had that 09 to 19 was that squeezing in, coiling the spring and then boom yep yep exactly a, a taste in 18 and then a uh, full taste in 2020 yeah do you have anything else you wanted to cover on the strategy yeah i know mike green talk has talked in the past a lot about passive investing uh and the dangers of it but i think that's also um that's also gonna if ever there was a grace one sitting out there that's uh, get everyone to have identically correlated portfolios and then watch what happens when the market turns and they all run for the exits. Yeah, that feeds right into that liquidity, right? If you have more and more concentration, it seems bad for- uh, Yeah, yeah. And what are your thoughts on retail all this retail options participation and record volumes and retail options and record options volumes overall. Well, it, it just looks like a slow moving South Sea bubble, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. these that turn the market into one big meme stock really. And uh, so you either invest in the general market and then as a sort of sideshow, you, you take a punt in some of these meme stocks with, no valuation metrics whatsoever that I can see. So that yeah, it's all good, but it's it's just indicative of a late stage bull market. It's slow moving, um, but I don't. I think uh, it's still a valid indicator. Yeah, and I don't know if you've seen some of that on Robinhood, the app, right? Of it's basically. I think they may have changed it now, but before six months ago, it was like if you think the stock's going up, buy a call. If you think yeah. it's going down by a put, yeah, yeah, so kind of, uh, it's much harder than that, wouldn't you say? <laughs> um, yeah, I used to think it was that easy thirty years ago, and uh... <laughs> well, the, that's who's buying these options. They think the same. <laughs> yeah, but that's great. Right? They buy a call it... on Netflix, and their earnings get they beat meet the earnings, and then the you know the stock goes down, or the vol comes in, and they lose money on the option, and they're like, but this. You know, options are always accompanied uh, in the tulip bubble. There were options on tulips. The explosion in, in the derivatives is almost a natural follow on from a late stage bull market. So it's, it's not surprising. I don't think it'll end well, but it's not surprising the phenomena. And what, what do you do personally, if you mind sharing of just two Right, if you're waiting 30 years for this big crash for all these tail risks to pay out, um, right? What's your what's your right personal right tail investment? Are you just long passive index funds or real estate or anything? Yeah, you know, I'm I've now can say that I'm pretty much out the equity market. I have yeah small investment in the equity market. I have some properties. Uh, I like farmland. Um, I'm extremely conservative uh, with my, at, at this juncture. Yeah. It's just always interesting to me of people who, right, who understand the left tail risk, oftentimes ignore the ability to 
right? There's a big opportunity cost of, I missed 300% up move in S&P. 100%. I, I've called 10 of the last two recessions. Yeah. <laughs> Congrats. That's better than most, right? Awesome, Jerry. What I'm going to do, we'll finish up with some of your uh, favorites and then we'll let you go enjoy. Uh, looks like a beautiful English summer day there. Great. Thank you. Um, so we'll just do quick fire favorites. Favorite jazz song? Um, Nancy with the Laughing Face by John Coltrane. Ooh, I love it. And favorite jazz singer? Coltrane? Uh, well, he, he was a sax player, famous jazz performer. Performer, sorry, yes. Dexter Gordon. Dexter Gordon, all right. I know yeah. Coltrane, I don't know Dexter. Yeah. Uh, favorite French restaurant? Uh, Corniche in Cape Foray. All right, we'll check it out. How about favorite place in uh, London there? Um, oh, that's a difficult one. Yeah. Probably Alfred's. Alfred's, all right. Yeah. Put it on the list. Um, Favorite investing book? Favorite investing book? Uh, Charlie Munger's um, Almanac. All right. Love it. Um, have you ever written a book? No. Any uh, design on it? No. Um, no. <laughs> right. I'd love team. How to win with teams of options. That'd be a good time. Yeah. 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 Um, and uh, favorite tourist spot in Zimbabwe or South Africa when I go uh, to the world? Victoria Falls. It's, it's one of the natural wonders of the world. And I think it only has 1,400 bed nights in it oh, in really? the whole town. It's, but it is definitely worth seeing. Yeah, I had a buddy who did a whitewater rafting below there. What's the yeah. river's name? I don't know the river. Um, uh, the Zambezi. The Zambezi, yeah. yeah. But he said, yeah. I guess it's super deep. It's like 80 feet deep or something. Yeah, yeah. So he's pretty, pretty hectic, that, that I believe. Yeah, he said they capsized. He went under and it pinned him like 30 feet under for uh, longer than he would have liked before he popped yeah. up. It's a, a little yeah. scary. Um, and then finally, favorite Star Wars character. I don't know if you're a fan or not, but we ask. All uh, of yeah, I would say it's got to be Yoda. Um, yeah. I mean, because he thinks his way through things and then he has access to higher power, which was always useful. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, he would have for sure been a long ball guy, right? He'd have been like, it's, it's well, side of the course. Yeah, yeah. I, well, maybe with that amount of knowledge. He might have been a short player. Yeah, he would he have been have. a market timer, I think, with that amount of uh, prescience. Yeah. Right, and if it didn't go his way, he could just uh, force it the other way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jerry, it's been great talking to you. Hopefully, yeah, uh, awesome. COVID yeah. opens things back up. Yeah. And we can see each other in person sometimes. That would be nice. That would be nice. And some blues bars here in Chicago. That sounds wicked. <laughs> All right, Jerry, thanks so much. Right, go well. The Derivative is brought to you by CME Group. CME Group is the world's leading and most diverse futures and options exchange. For more information and educational resources about futures and options, visit cmegroup.com. You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCMAlt and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you.